Welcome to Reinventing You, a podcast of the Reinvention Collaborative. The Reinvention Collaborative is a Boyer-inspired national consortium of research universities dedicated to innovation and excellence in undergraduate education. Listen to Reinventing You for cutting-edge perspectives from experts in undergraduate education. We're your hosts, Steve Dandino and Liz Mock, coming to you from the RC Home Office at Colorado State University, Fort Collins, Colorado. Today's guest is Dr. DeAngela Burns-Wallace, Vice Provost for Undergraduate Studies at the University of Kansas, the flagship public university of Kansas and a reinvention collaborative member institution. Dr. Burns-Wallace presented on today's topic, how overscheduled and too often overwhelmed university leaders are at the most recent meeting of the University Innovation Alliance, of which KU is a member. That's a topic which we think will interest folks whose ultimate concern is the quality of undergraduate education. If university leaders are stuck in less than productive meetings and tied up answering less than important emails, then they don't often have the time needed to plan and guide change and strengthen the educational experience of students. So welcome, D'Angelo. We're really delighted that you're able to find some time to be with us today. Uh, Would you be so kind to get us started by maybe sharing with our listeners a little bit about your own biography? You know, where are you from originally? Uh, What was your own undergraduate experience like? What path led you to KU and to university administration? Good morning. What I would say is, is that I am originally from Kansas City, Missouri. And so my path to Kansas is almost one of coming home. But the journey along the way has been varied and exciting. Um, I did my undergraduate work at Stanford University, and my degrees are in international relations in African and African American studies. And I did my master's work at the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs at Princeton University. So the whole first part of my journey through undergrad and even through my, my master's degree was focused on policy in particular, Um, international policy, but very much policy, understanding how things work and how the have and have nots have access to information, resources, um, opportunities. And along the way, I was fortunate enough to be selected for a national fellowship through the State Department, which is called the Pickering Fellowship, that identifies undergraduate students and uh, supports them through their graduate work, and they become foreign service officers. This is an important piece for me because my undergraduate journey was about getting access to opportunities and resources that as a first-generation college student, I didn't know even existed, but that matched on to my passions and my interests. And there were individuals that sat in roles like the one that I sit in now that helped to make those opportunities available uh, to me and to other students. So I did spend the first half of my career about 10 years in the foreign service. I was a diplomat. I served in northern and southern China. I served in South Africa um, and I served in Washington, D.C. on the Hill and in legislative affairs. That part of my career was exciting. It was amazing. I was a management officer, a press attache, um, a legislative aide, um, and many other things. Um, And 
one day as things started to shift in government, I started to look around and look at the things that really excited me about my work. And a piece of that was about creating more access and more opportunities um, and the policy side of things, which eventually led me to moving into higher education. And I started my higher ed career at back at my alma mater at Stanford, where I was an assistant dean of undergraduate admissions uh, for a number of years, went back to school and got that doctorate in higher education management from the University of Pennsylvania's Graduate School of Education. Um, great program and really prepared me for the steps that eventually led me to University of Missouri first as an assistant vice provost for enrollment management and eventually an assistant vice provost of undergraduate studies that then opened up the pathway for me to be an ACE fellow, um, the American Council on Education, their um, emerging leaders fellow is an amazing opportunity that introduced me to the leadership here at Kansas and a few years later uh, created the opportunity for me to join Kansas as their vice provost for undergraduate studies. But that's a long way of saying that access to opportunities and having individuals in the right places to help identify and connect my passions with those opportunities has really made the difference in my journey. Yeah, you know, I knew some of that, uh, D'Angelo, but I didn't know you were a Pickering Fellow. I mean, that's the Rhodes Scholarship of International Affairs. Wow, that's yeah, ACE Fellow. That's cool, but Pickering. Wow, <laughs> you got me impressed. Thank you. It, it's it was an exciting time, and I really enjoyed it. And I recruit Pickerings, and I will say that the University of Kansas just um, got their first Rango Fellow, which is a, a sister program to the Pickering this year. Um, and I will say that it was one of my mentees. So. I, I feel continuing to do the work. That's what we're, we're here for. Moving to the topic at hand, we're grateful for this time that you're able to share with our listeners today. So what do you see as the key time management and organizational issues getting in the way of effective university administration and leadership? And what did you do today that helped you free up enough time to talk about this problem? <laughs> well, you know, I think if we really take a step back, we could put it in three big bundles. The first is schedule fatigue. If any of us were to open up our calendars and look at our schedules, and we have the beautiful color coding and mapping of our calendars, which help keep us on time and on task, but our calendars look um, like a minefield. Um, are we are double scheduled, we are triple scheduled, there's no breaks. My assistant has to even schedule in my travel time in between every single meetings just to ensure that no one books on top of me getting from one location to campus to another. That schedule fatigue puts us in a place where we are going, going, going. And if I'm in meetings from 8 a.m. until you know 5 p.m., when and how do I get conversations done? When do I get emails done? When do I have the time to stop and think about the work that we're doing or even follow up on the meetings that I just had. I would say the second bucket is, is what I would call um, email paralysis. You know, I at the UIA conference that you mentioned in the Ed talk that I gave, I showed a picture that showed um, a scene from the TV show Hoarders. And I said to everybody, you know, you've seen Hoarders, you can admit it, you, you know, get that visualization of what it looks like when a room looks like hoarding. 
And then I flipped the screen and I showed them someone's email box that said that they had 2,000 unread messages. And the room erupted because I said, what is the difference between that picture of that physical hoarding of things and having over 2,000 unread messages in your email box? It's the same thing. And the reality is, is that we get to a place of paralysis. We have so many and it is so overwhelming that it literally stops us in our tracks from actually getting through and being able to prioritize what we need to accomplish. And then the third area I would say is what I would call information overload. The amount of information that we are trying to consume and analyze digest, and be able to take action on today in our roles, particularly in relationship to undergraduate education and moving the needle, being transformative, being innovative, being creative. You are taking in so much information. When you couple that with the schedule fatigue and the email paralysis, when do you have time to digest and to really make action planning around that information? So I would say that is a big piece of what gets in our way. You know, how do I, how did I make the time today? Well, I scheduled it. (laughs) it, It's not a great thing because that means it hit my schedule with the schedule fatigue. And then we shared at least four or five emails that added to my email paralysis. And, but what I will say is there's an important piece of thinking about how we use our scheduling differently? How can you use the power of your schedule to then tackle some of these pieces like the email paralysis or the information overload? How do you schedule time to make a to-do list and not just create the list, but schedule the to-dos into your actual calendar? How do you schedule in time to digest certain information or to do follow-ups to the meetings that need to be done. Like, how do we use the things that sometimes put us at a disadvantage to create opportunity? And that's a big piece of figuring out for each of us what that may look like and what areas we can can utilize in that practice. That's so interesting. And I think it's something that we all deal with. And we, in episode two, we actually just spoke with Dr. Ann Cleary from Colorado State University, who is a cognitive psychologist who focuses on memory and just wrote a book with two of her colleagues on the science of learning. And we talked about cognitive load and cognitive offloading. When people get overloaded with information, we need a way to take something off of that Mm -hmm. cognitive load. And I think we are all overloaded and we have our schedules, our emails adding to our cognitive load. And we need to find a way to offload so that we're able to think creatively. We're able to be agents of change. Yes. And so that leads to our next question. I've been reading a lot about this topic and have heard that a change-oriented organization should dedicate 25 or at least 20% of its time to fostering change. Do you think that's reasonable? Should university leaders spend one day per week planning and guiding institutional change? What happens if they don't? I would say, you know, at the onset, there's probably no one who's thinking um, that they shouldn't do that. You know, it would be great if we could do 20% of our time with um, institutional change or 20% of our time to foster that change. And there's a reality around kind of what you were talking about with cognitive load. 
you know, when we think about and going back to that picture of hoarders, that clutter, there is a reality that when you clear some of the clutter out of your schedule, out of your email, you create space for new things. You create energy and a space for creativity. And the reality for many of us is that we have so many tactical things that we have to get accomplished in a given day, as well as the emergencies that come up, that the idea or the concept of dedicating 20% of our time to change or taking one day a week is, is ideal, but it doesn't typically happen. But I would say that, you know, there's evidence that shows that without that space, that that clearing of the clutter, how else do you create the energy and the time and space for the creativity or for the innovation? And if we are truly dedicated to this work of transforming our institutions, that space of the creativity and the innovation or even just the information, that, that digesting of information is critical. How and when can you actually look at, understand, and put action around the data that you may be collecting and that you understand is, is helping you to see how your students are moving differently and how do you create and identify those, those areas that might be roadblocks that you need to take down that are institutional blocks. If you don't have the time to actually analyze and digest, what the data is telling you, and you don't have the opportunity then to bring together those that can action plan with you. So when we don't create that space, when we don't clear out some of that clutter in our schedules, in our email, and with the ability to digest the information, we actually lose and our students lose because without that space for that creativity and that energy, we cannot continue to do the work at the level that can be transformative. Do we get the day-to-day -day done? Probably, and in most cases, you know, we have and we will, but if we're really looking at where we are as higher ed and how our students are benefiting and moving through and trying to move the needle on student success across the board in many different ways. Without that space, we really are just stuck where we are today and not able to be transformative. D'Angelo, your use of the um, hoarder analogy makes me think about the irrational side of how people might even get attached. And you, I think you you talk about this, you, know, you did in your UIA talk, the, the kind of attachment sometimes maybe people have to very busy schedules, almost like it's a badge of honor, perhaps. Oh, I'm covered up for weeks. I can't meet with you for, you know, a month because I'm so important. I have no time whatsoever. It's all dedicated. Do you run into any of that? I know that's probably not the most common piece of this problem, but are people attached to schedules uh, in a kind of odd, maybe irrational way sometimes? I think so. And I, and, and not in a way that is even self-aggrandizement, you know? And so we, we feel that as leaders, we have to have this perceived balance. One of the graphics that I use was a woman and she had a, a kind of a Zen look on her face, but she had eight arms. And one of the, <laughs> she had a cell phone in one arm, she had data in another arm, she had a clipboard, she had her laptop, she had her schedule and she had her coffee, but her face was Zen. And it was like, we believe sometimes that as a leader, we have to have this perceived balance. I can handle it all, or otherwise I'm not perceived as a good leader. But sometimes being a good leader is being able to say, 
I can only handle this much. And now I need to identify different pockets of my leadership team that can pick up these pieces because we're going to be more effective if we are building capacity. Sometimes I think we do feel that we have to be doing it all. Or if my schedule isn't full, then I'm not using all of my time or there's one more thing that should be done. Or if, if, if I don't have a bunch of emails, then maybe other people aren't working or I'm not generating what I need to. And I don't know that. And you, like you said, it's very irrational because um, at the end of the day, we know that it's not all possible. But I do think sometimes as leaders, we try to carry that or even want to give the perception that you do have it all in balance because you want your team to feel like you have it under control so that they don't feel that pressure. But understand, if you're presenting this Zen view of balance with eight arms, your leadership team and your staffs that are looking at you then believe that they have to have eight arms. And that's not our intent. So being careful and being thoughtful about how we delegate and when we delegate, how we use our time and that energy and how we maximize those interactions and meetings and being able to say, here's our real capacity. This is what we can do and what we can do well. This is what we are going to have to begin to prioritize and figure out how we do this. How do you use collaborations in that space? Who else is doing this work? Pushing ourselves sometimes to say, yes, we would love to lead that and we would like it to look like this when this activity or this initiative happens. But maybe it's this is the one that we partner with student affairs on and we have student affairs take the lead. And it may look a little different, but if we are working towards a, a genuine and a collaborative outcome, we still get the work done. That makes a lot of sense. Um you mentioned delegation and networking and collaboration. <laughs> Are there any other to-dos that uh, you're aware of that a leader might try in order to get a handle on those three big buckets of uh, challenges? You know, I you think know, that, that there's a couple face? of things out there. If you Google, you know, time management or effective strategies for you know, executive leaders, there are a ton of articles. And what I would say is that many of them are actually really good and give some great tips. The one thing you have to be careful of is you have to know yourself and how you work to figure out which of those tips or techniques are going to work the best for your style. But I do think that there's a couple out there and there's some tools that can be helpful. You know, one of the things that um, some of the articles talk about in terms of really using your time and trying to, to tackle your email is how do you put email in a place where maybe you only look at it at three points in a day instead of constantly looking at it all day long where it's taking your attention away from other things. Um, for others, um, they talk about you know scheduling your email like that, but also touching your email in a certain way where you go into an email and you immediately do one of, of three actions. You open that email and when you open it, you delegate it, meaning it's there and someone else needs to take action and they can get to it faster. You read it and it was for information only, which means you delete it from that main inbox, move it to an archive file, or you just delete it because you have what you need. Or 
you have a group that you really do need to defer because it's going to take longer than five minutes. And so you really need to spend some time on it. But if you defer it, you must schedule some calendar time to make sure you can get back to those deferred actions. And then for those activities in your email that really you can do quickly and get out of your box, just do it. And if you have a dedicated amount of time and for every email you're touching, you're taking some type of action, delete, delegate, defer, or do, how quickly could you move through a set of your emails? Now that may not work for everyone, but there are other tips and techniques out there that are like that. The reality though, is that each of us has to take a step back and say, I have to have an intentional strategy about how I'm going to handle my emails and to stay on top of them and move through them. You also have to have an intentional strategy around how you move through information and balance your schedule. So thinking about how you maximize those meetings so that they're most efficient, whether it's, you know, that they are short standing meetings, some people like that, or um, there's always an agenda and every meeting is, you know, only 30 minutes and we're going to get through what we get through. Various techniques work in different styles, but it's this idea of have you actually looked at the number of meetings that you're having? What's the structure of them? What are the outcomes? And how many of those meetings can be turned into an, an email? Now, granted, that creates an email exchange, but do you have a different way to execute, execute on that action? One of the last things I would say in this space, and this is something that I would say we do not talk about enough. And sometimes we feel that it's something that maybe, you know, isn't as academic or in that professional development space. But what I would say in talking with a number of university leaders when I was an ACE fellow, one of the things that was consistent across all of them is that you have to also take care of yourself. You have to create time where you can rejuvenate. For some, that means exercising. For some, that might be meditation. Um, for others, it might be spending time doing what they love, reading or gardening. But if you do not think about how you create your own energy and renew your own energy over just simply the amount of time that you are spending working, at a certain point, your productivity does begin to dwindle. And all of those senior leaders, presidents, chancellors, provosts, all said that that was really for many of them their tipping point of understanding that they had to be just as intentional about scheduling that time to re-energize themselves just as they scheduled those meetings, just as they scheduled that to-do list, and just as they scheduled that email time. Yeah, I've heard, uh, I've heard folks say that as well. It seems to me that's good advice. You know, I'm thinking here about our undergraduate students. They live in the same world we do. Are there any uh, insights that you would uh, that you've gleaned about their experience as students that that you know comes from your thinking about the challenges that university uh, faculty and staff and leaders uh, face in in working and typically in large organizational contexts? You know, I would say one of the things that we should think about is that we have a lot of our students who work in our offices. And so what are what are we teaching them when they see us overscheduled and with this email paralysis? 
um, you know, and in, in, in that information overload. And thinking differently, you know, one of the things that we have here at the University of Kansas, our career center has developed kind of an employability curriculum. It's like a set of modules that a student can go through where they're learning skills about being, a, you know, a strong employee. Some of the things that you need to do in terms of interfacing in that environment, skills that make you, you know, employable. Um, and some of those are time management and, you know, kind of, you know, handling and moving through information. And some of those are much more, you know, content and, and specific to your area. But this idea of actually helping our students, when we talk to our students about time management for their courses, right? We talk to them about how they use their time throughout the day and how they use their schedule. We talk to them about putting together four-year plans and having summer plans and all of these things matter. Talking to our students about how then, particularly as we help them understand across the four years how to do these things, then being intentional about how we show them to pull those resources through as they begin to think about their next step, whether that's grad school or career, how then do some of those time management techniques we taught them for their coursework, how do they translate that into a working environment or a graduate school environment? I think they face the same things that we do. Sometimes we see them differently because they're a student and it's academics um, and, and we have all the tools built around those things or the conversations ready. But remember, they're employees in many of our offices as well. They're interns that we're sending out and eventually they will be full-time employees in some environment. For me, I think it's a powerful piece to have real intentional conversations with our students, whether they're a student worker or if it's part of an academic space in preparation for their next steps and careers, about making sure they understand some of the skills that they've built around how they move through successfully in their curriculum and through their academic journey are things that are translatable to making them that same level of success when they move into their careers. We're mindful that you have other things to do today. What is the essential message you'd like our listeners to take to heart? You know, I I do believe at the heart of all of this, and it's really interesting because when I was asked even to do you know this conversation um, and to do my original uh, ed talk at the UIA uh, summit around this, I literally said, you know, nobody wants to hear us talk about how busy we are and how we can't manage our own schedules. And <laughs> I was like, we're just, you know, people are going to be like, oh, deal with it. And at the, the summit, I did a seven minute TED talk. And then we had a breakout session where we could, you know, kind of delve into more techniques and have conversations. And we ran the breakout session twice. When I say both of my breakout sessions were standing room only, um, <laughs> and and in moments felt like therapy. <laughs> you know, it was a moment that it was very affirming that our realities are, if we say our conversation is going to be about um, student success, if we say our conversation is going to be about predictive analytics, if we say our conversation is going to be about, um, you know, transformation of your gen ed requirements, all of us that do this work are going to stop and say, yes, I have to be part of that conversation because I need to understand the critical things that are that are moving and shaking in undergraduate education and that'll help me and my students and my institution be better. 
What I would say today is that if we don't stop and think how we create space and capacity to be able to renew that energy and actually be innovative and thoughtful, that we are doing just much a disservice as not being a part of those other conversations. We are the thought leaders that are helping our institutions understand our students better and their success. We are the collaborators that come together around groups like the Reinvention Collaborative to really gain a deeper understanding of who and what we're doing and how higher education is playing the role we need it to play in our society. If we are at a level of exhaustion that we can't even fully engage in the conversation, then how are we going to continue to make the change that we know is possible? So while it may seem as the secondhand conversation or the conversation you have over coffee, sometimes we need to think about how we make this the first priority, because when we make this a priority, it allows the success of so much more of what we're doing to truly rise to its fullest capacity. Boy, that makes a lot of sense. Once we've made it that first priority, do you have a thought about what the first concrete step should be then to get the ball rolling? What I will say is that it's about how do you intentionally put this into operationalize it, right? And so is that carving out time in a monthly way where your leadership team is getting together to bring ideas and opportunities that they're working on or thinking that they can then have a peer thought group around? Is it implementing um, you know, monthly brown bag conversations when you're dealing with things like, you know, growth mindset and, um, you know, how, you know, sense of self or sense of belonging um, with staff and with um, leadership teams? Um, is it looking at your schedule and figuring out where are you creating time for rejuvenation of health? Um, where are you creating time for, um, that collaboration that isn't a part of a particular issue or a problem that's the face of the day. I think you have to say this is a priority one. And then two, you actually have to create the structure or the mechanism that allows you to do this that best fits your environment. And it has to be something that is a commitment to that is reoccurring in whichever structure you build it. And then most importantly, you have to be able to message out throughout your organization that this is a priority. So this does not get canceled. It does not get rescheduled. It does not get scheduled on top of that you are committing to and that you are also fostering that commitment throughout your organization so that similar techniques and action steps can be taken at all levels. Because if only the leadership team is being renewed and creating that space for capacity of creativity and innovation, that means that all of the work that you're trying to create is falling on a group of individuals that they themselves haven't had that opportunity to create that space or capacity. So it is about finding concrete actionable steps that can be reoccurring in your space that allow you to create the necessary space to tackle some of these issues. And it won't look the same for everyone, 
Um, and sometimes it's a process. Sometimes maybe it's a technology or an app that can help that gain. And sometimes it is as simple as using the tools like a schedule, an email, um, a standing meeting to do something different that allows you to create that capacity. But until you identify what that is, until you put that level of priority on it and articulate that, and then ensure that that happens in a reoccurring way, it'll never happen. Well, on behalf of our members and listeners, Steve and I would like to thank D'Angela Burns-Wallace, Vice Provost for Undergraduate Studies at the University of Kansas, for sharing with us today about this incredibly important topic. So thank you, D'Angela. We're so grateful. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. This is a great conversation. Our members can listen to an extended version of this podcast on our website at reinventioncollaborative, all one word, dot org. Thank you again, D'Angela. You've given us a great deal to ponder further. 